This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, today's topic is so important, but frankly, the issue is a bit overwhelming, particularly when you consider the data. So let me start with this. Did you know that today, more than 27 million people are in forced labor? 17 million among those are exploited in the private sector and 6 million in forced commercial sexual exploitation. This is according to a report on global estimates of modern slavery as of September 2022. Now, there's several organizations that are in this space providing really powerful, life-giving services to help rescue those caught up in human trafficking. And my guest is leading one of those organizations. My guest today is Diana Mao. She is the co-founder and president of the Nomi Network. Diana has served on the White House Private-Public Partnership Against Human Trafficking, and her recommendations actually have informed policymakers in the U.S. Congress, which in turn has strengthened workforce development for survivors and women at risk of human trafficking. Enjoy today's show. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business. Well, Diana, so great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, yes, absolutely. Well, this topic is very uh, critical. It's very serious. It's very important. And for my listeners, again, it's clear that modern slavery, especially among young women and girls, happens right here in the U.S., not just in other parts of the world. And so I want to start with that, and we're going to explore that and talk a little bit more about the stats around it. But first, I think it's always important and, and actually interesting to hear from you about your story. What prompted you to go into this work? And what I've learned a little bit about your story is that your motivation really came from a research trip to Cambodia, where you personally witnessed young children being trafficked and sold. And this convinced you of the urgency and necessity really for action. So tell us more about your story to start out today. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. I would say it was very accidental. I was a research fellow for a microfinance bank and charged with interviewing microfinance clients in Cambodia. And when I traveled to some of the rural areas, just to kind of give you context, it would take a car, an SUV, motorcycle, and then walking through muck, uh, leech-infested muck, to get to some of these communities where microfinance clients live. And it was in a village near um, the Thai border where I met a single father with seven children. And he, after we had surveyed him, we knew he had barely one meal to eat per day for his seven or eight children. And living in a hut with no bed, no running water or electricity, and lost his wife to malaria. After we surveyed him, he offered my male colleague his youngest daughter in broken English, you like her, you take her. And we were both horrified and shocked that he made that proposition and we left just really disheartened, you know, learning he was still living off of 75 cents, if that at all, per day and trying to feed his children while simultaneously being in the city where we stayed, our hotel was based and seeing, you know, very old foreign men, mostly gallivanting the streets with young children in 2007. So that struck a chord and opened my eyes to the issue. And the more I researched, the more I talked to practitioners and organizations, the more I realized that this 
is addressable from the economic perspective. And that's what really lured me into wanting to fight this huge issue, uh, global issue. And personally, you know, myself coming from really learning about my own father's trauma, being in labor camp in China and due to his family's prominence. I know labor camp is very different than, you know, human trafficking, but some of the same similar conditions of control, forced to work with no pay in squalid conditions and really seeing the impact on his life and how it impacted my siblings and I really really also kind of gave me a deeper meaning to why I'm in the fight against human trafficking. Now, thank you so much. That, that's such a powerful personal story. And thank you for what you're doing and uh, putting your life's work into this. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, you may be surprised, listener, that 27 million people right now are in forced labor. 17 million among those are exploited in the private sector and 6 million in forced commercial sexual exploitation. And this is according to the report on global estimates of modern slavery, according to a September 2022 report. So I wanted to start out, Diana, to let's start by dispelling the myth that human trafficking or slavery is not happening in the U.S. Give us a quick overview of how prevalent this is right here in the United States. Yeah, it's Quite prevalent in the sense, recently the Global Slavery Index issued a report that in the U.S. there's approximately 1 million people in human trafficking. And it's a little bit different in the sense that you can't, you know, it's not as evident. You are in India, Cambodia, you see children being graded on the streets and in brothels, sadly. But in the U.S., it's really hidden in the sense that a lot of times it's children aging out of foster care, homeless youth, runaway youth, those that are most vulnerable in in the United States are susceptible to human trafficking and sadly get exploited. Okay, for you know, from your experience in this space, why is it more difficult for people to grasp how big of a problem this is again right here in the US and how can we mitigate that? Yeah, I mean, I would say in the US, you know, because a trafficking hotspot area looks very different in the sense that it's tucked away as I mentioned in some of these systems and we see, you know, individuals, their basic Maslow's hierarchy of need being met, you know, shelter, food, water. Most people in the United States, I will say, although some communities obviously do not have access to potable water, but generally speaking, we have our basic needs met and we're really moving towards like actualization, you know, our hopes and dreams and realizing those things. Whereas in communities like real India, you see that people are living in, you know, very squalid conditions without So that could be really deceptive in the sense that, oh, it just simply doesn't happen here. It happens overseas, you know, in Africa, in Asia. But if you really peel back the onion, it happens here. And I'll just give you a quick example. I was shopping at Costco this week and a young boy approached my husband and I. It was, you know, it was dust. So basically night. And he asked if he could wash our car. And this young boy, I mean, he, you know, looked no more than 10 years old. And, you know, based on what I know, because I'm in the anti-trafficking field, I know that those oftentimes in New York City, on subway, selling candy, you know, asking for money on the streets, many times those are actually those, they're forced or coerced to do that by criminal network. So what I know about human trafficking, most likely this young boy was being manipulated or coerced into washing the car, you know, and getting, you know, in essence, asking, begging for money. So if you open your eyes, it's there, you know, I think for us, uh, awareness is key in the United States. 
No, that's really interesting. And thanks for sharing that personal story. You know, when it comes to this issue, would you say that poverty and economic marginalization are really the two primary drivers that cause particularly women and girls to be the most vulnerable for exploitation? Or are there other causes that uh, really lead uh, the vulnerable into this exploitation? Yeah, I would say those are the primary factors for women and girls globally. In places like rural India, girls are pulled out of school as young as in the third grade. They're not given economic opportunity. In some areas in rural India, they're seeing no much, not much even worth in terms of an animal or livestock. So the devaluization of women and girls, I would say in countries where there are just a lower you know, standard of living and less education, that's what really drives the issue at large. I would say also, you know, just sort of the, the mindset you know, that individuals are disposable in these communities as well. On top of the layer of economic justice, I would say the additional lens. That's so interesting. Okay. Now, thanks for saying that. And now with your work there at Nomi, you not only are dedicated to rescuing people from human trafficking, but you're a big believer that by creating pathways to safe employment and economic stability, you're really actually helping to prevent trafficking while empowering women to rewrite the narratives for a future generation. So tell us a bit more about how Nomi does their work. Yeah, that's a good question. So globally, we focus on the most under-resourced areas with high incidences of human trafficking. So I say incidences because in India, it's not the most prevalent. However, with 1.2 billion people, they're, you know, out of the global figure, they're half of the world's population of those in slavery are in India. So that's why we focus on India. We focus on really hotspot areas where there's high incidences. And under-resourced in globally means lack of potable water, electricity, and basic needs are not being met. In the United States, we also work. We work within a juvenile detention center. And you're probably wondering, how is that a hotspot? Well, thanks to the justice system, we're able to identify girls who are caught up in the justice system, brought in on counts of prostitution as young as 10 years old. So that's where we focus on the most acute system in the U.S. And we work in that system to get girls out of that cycle and into career pathways. So we set up our workforce development program, whether it's in the juvenile detention center or whether it's in a rural community that is within the red light district in India or Cambodia, for example. And we have a program that ranges from six months to 12 months, which includes life skill training, technical skill training, career exploration, getting women and girls into a career, into an internship in about 20 different sectors. And so we work closely with the private sector. India's largest manufacturer, we place women and girls out of the north part of India where there's high incidences into the south where there's more prosperity and more manufacturers. So we help them safely migrate to those jobs or stay in the community and find the jobs within the community to place women and to gain full employment. We'll be right back. Are you looking for an easy and effective way to boost your nonprofit's donations? Look no further than DonorBox, the online fundraising platform that streamlines your fundraising efforts, maximizes donations, and simplifies giving for your supporters. With DonorBox, you can create beautiful donation forms, accept digital wallet payments, track donations, and send auto receipts. And the best part? There are no setup or monthly fees and no long-term contracts required. So what are you waiting for? 
Visit DonorBox.org today to get started. That is DonorBox.org. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. I wanted to let you know that I've recently become a professionally certified coach. With my nearly 30 years of nonprofit experience, I know firsthand how hard leaders work. I also know how important it is to have someone you can call on to get help with the barriers and leadership challenges you will face both professionally and personally. I really want people to thrive and become all they were meant to become by providing coaching and consulting services. If coaching is something you've always been interested in, but weren't quite sure what it was all about, I encourage you to reach out. You can go to my website, robharder.com, or just email me at rob at robharder.com. I would be happy to provide a free sample coaching session so you can determine if coaching is for you. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Now, well done. And again, congratulations on all your hard work with that. Now, continuing on the work that Nomi does, you specifically also provide ways to really help fuel confidence. You do this through financial literacy, affirmation center training. You also address barriers to work that include technical skills, job readiness skills that you provide. Could you share more about the specific programs you're implementing? Yeah, absolutely. So really the core tenement is workforce development in three phases, and we contextualize it for places like Northern India, where there's systemic violence against women and girls. So the training changes to, you know, we provide the workforce, but we also provide services around that, like rights, you know, so that they know their rights. For example, in India, that part, one particular state, they had an alcohol ban because there were high domestic violence. Now, the women didn't know that there was an alcohol ban. And while their, you know, quote unquote, husbands were abusing them after, you know, some issues with alcoholism, now, after our training, they realized, well, we could report this. This is not legal for them to even have alcohol, right? So what they don't know is what they don't know. So really, the tenement is workforce, but we have periphery services around to strengthen the outcome of job placement, job retention, economic mobility. And then in India also, we provide adolescent girl training because we noticed a lot of girls were out of school coming with their moms to the training program. And, you know, helping their mom, you know, with some activities that, you know, regularly were like, where are the girls here and not in school? So that's what the adolescent girl program started, where we also concurrently run the program with the adult women program. And in Cambodia, we specifically choose an area with lots of cross-border trafficking in Poi Pet, where there's a huge industry around casinos, the gambling industry. So we do a lot of outreach there. And we also partnered with a Toyota affiliate to place women from rural areas in that area who were prior to our program migrating to Thailand and sadly ending up in very vulnerable circumstances where they're promised a job, but they end up being trafficked. But now the pipeline is going into our employment partners, you know, Toyota, safe workplaces for women. So just give you a kind of snapshot of our program. No, very helpful. And do you do much with aftercare? When you get, particularly with those who go through a sex trafficking, do you pull them out for counseling and things like that after the fact? We work with partners that provide more of the trauma counseling. We provide some legal services, but we partner with, you know, drug addiction specialists. We really focus on the workforce side. And in particular, Dallas, we partner with about 20 different local organizations that are working with the youth on other outcomes, more of the social services, 
And so we really focus on more of the career pathway, educational pathways, getting them back in school, helping them get their GEDs. But most importantly, we help them once they leave the detention system, they always can pick up the phone and call our case manager. In fact, our case manager meets with them on a regular basis to make sure they have all that they need. Most cases, they don't have family support. So in essence, we become the resource that they go to if they need shelter, the resource they go to if they need food, we give them certificate certificates to get food. So all of these things, we really become their biggest champion after they leave the detention system. No, thanks for that. And, you know, it's a huge problem. And I think when people learn about these stats and learn about all the folks that are in this uh, terrible uh, situation of modern slavery, how do you keep from not getting discouraged? Like what keeps you moving forward? What gives you hope today to keep doing the important work you're doing? Yeah. Well, I think of, I, you know, travel a lot. I go to the areas, I talk to our clients. And so I think of women like RT that in our program in Jarshkuda, Jarshkuda, just to get you kind of a sense, it's India's largest coal mining industry is in that region. You drive into that region and there's a cloud of smoke and individuals that live in the rural areas just have no protection against these environmental externalities. So RT's mom, she actually is a day laborer at the coal mine. So if there is work, she earns no more than 75 cents, if that at all. Her father unfortunately left them at a very young age, her and her siblings. And so she was getting, when we first met her, she was getting prepared to be married off into a family. A lot of times that's where they get trafficked because they get promised a marriage too and they get trafficked. But instead she was able to enroll in our program. And in 2022, she completed a workforce development training program, was placed at a employment partner of ours, earned a uh, $150 a month. And prior to that was earning nothing. And then recently she reported she's earning $200 a month, able to send money home to her mother. Her mother was able to upgrade their mud hut into a more concrete, more stable infrastructure for her and her siblings. And her siblings able to re-enroll in school because of her the proceeds from RT as well. So that is just one of the thousands of stories that keep me going and give me hope. And I really think back to the women that are really on the front lines. I'm, you know, championing the work and, but I find it that they're the true sheroes that I really look to for inspiration. Now, what a great example. And that is so encouraging. So again, thanks for all your work along those lines. Now, as you think about the next, say, three to five years, the challenges are daunting, as we've talked about. What are your BHAG goals, using Jim Collins' BHAG as a term for, you know, what are those really big goals you're aiming for when it comes to Nomi's work, not just in the U.S., but just across the world? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in the anti-trafficking space, we are the only organization focused on employment opportunities at scale for survivors. So if we looked at anti-trafficking, that's great. You know, we're really many ways like killing it in the sense of getting women gainful employment out of the cycle. But there, as you know, staggering statistics. So my audacious goal is to, in the next three years, to move from 16 training sites in Asia and in the US to 50 training sites in the most high need regions. And to reach over a million uh, women and girls. And that you know, definitely is quite scale and in our sector, massive scale. But I really believe that if we can not just 
see the women um, earn income, but actually measure how that changes their community in terms of reduction of trafficking, connecting the dots between this intervention and reduction, which is very difficult, as you know, in, in human trafficking, we really will be able to see kind of the pendulum swing and then more interventions like NOMI spring forth, more investment from stakeholders, government stakeholders to make these investments into women and girls to be economically reaching their full potential. And then finally is to have every Fortune 500 company ready to hire survivors. You know, survivors the job, but there's many gaps. But really the Fortune 500 companies, I believe that they have the resources to carve out position for survivors. And I want to work with them on that. Oh, good stuff. For my listeners, again, I have on my show, Diana Mao, who is the co-founder and president of the Nomi Network. So for people who are listening and they want to get to know you a little bit, find out more information about the Nomi Network, uh, where would you send them? Yeah, I would send them to our website, www.nomi.org. Also add us on LinkedIn, add me on LinkedIn. My name is Diana Mao, so easy to find. So thank you so much for listening. And also just really, just simply by listening, I feel like you've enlisted into the network of NOMI and really supporting the NOMIs of our world through your network and through your spheres of influence. Yeah, you bet. Well, again, Diana, thanks for all your important work. It is critical work. Thanks for what you're doing. So glad that you're finding hope along the way and encouragement along the way. And thanks for taking time out to be on the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Harder. Hey friends, well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business.